0: This message comes from NPR-sponsored WW Norton & Company with The Catalyst, RNA and the Quest to Unlock Life's Deepest Secrets from Nobel Laureate Thomas R. Cech. Exploring the most transformative breakthroughs in biology since the discovery of the double helix. Available now.
1: This is The Pulse. Stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. We spend a lot of time thinking about happiness. Am I really happy? And we try to predict what will make us happy in the future or what might lead to misery down the road. We chase success, money, and love. We work hard or maybe even move from place to place, all in an effort to find fulfillment. But what actually brings us a lasting sense of contentment is often very different from what we thought, and researchers are trying to quantify what leads to that sense of well-being. On this episode, a look at happiness and how we can find more of it. We'll hear about the longest-running study on the subject, find out if money is really a game-changer, and talk to a therapist who says we need to stop obsessing over happiness. To get started, let's look at one of life's big questions, where it seems like choosing one option over another could have deep and lasting consequences. Pulse reporter Liz Tang has found herself at a crossroads lately, wrestling with the decision whether she and her husband should try to have children or continue on their current path as a childless couple. Would having kids make them more happy or less satisfied? Would not having children mean big regrets later in life? Liz decided to consult her friends who are parents and also scientists who have studied this question in her quest for answers. I'm
2: in the car with a few friends and we're on our way back from a baby shower. One of them is FaceTiming with her two-year-old daughter, who's back at home with her husband.
3: (laughs) You guys having fun? I saw that you went to at the house. At the house, yeah.
4: (laughs) You You were telling me over and over again.
2: (laughs) The daughter does some more adorable babbling and then it's time to sign off. right, So say
5: all right, baby. I love Bye, you. Bye. Bye, you Bye, babe. Bye, babe.
2: This is the side of parenting I usually see. All the cute things. Cute pictures, cute stories, cute videos. And when I see it all, I can almost imagine my husband Wooly and I doing it ourselves. The excitement of feeling that first kick. The bliss of holding a newborn. The pure joy of a little person you created running into your arms like you're their whole world. Or as one of my friends told me, it's like how you feel about your cat times a million. For most of my life, I didn't think much about having kids. After college, I was always focused on the next thing. Traveling, getting married, grad school, buying a house. And then suddenly, the checklist was full and I had this thought, wait, what did I do this all for? It seemed like the obvious answer was what all of my friends had started doing, having kids. It's something my husband, Wooly and I started talking about a couple years ago when I hit my mid-30s. But pretty quickly in these discussions would always hit a wall, that wall being potential problems.
4: Well, I think really the, the biggest hindrance is the amount of money. That it takes, I think we'd just be constantly scrambling and panic and feeling like we were letting the child down by not doing well enough because circumstances just don't allow for it.
2: I worry more about whether or not we could actually handle it. Wooly's on the spectrum and hates loud noises. He also doesn't do very well without enough sleep. I, on the other hand, struggle with executive functioning, being on time, remembering appointments, not losing my keys. And I require lots of me time to recharge. So all of that's in the no column. In the yes column, our future happiness, feeling like we have meaning in our lives, and the distinct fear that I'm missing out on something, something big, something life-changing, something that would bring us a depth of joy and love that we would never otherwise understand. So it's big philosophical questions on the one side and more practical logistics type issues on the other. It feels like this complicated equation that I can't quite solve. So finally, I decided to stop churning my brain and to ask my friends, what is having kids really like? And has it made them happy? My first discovery was that almost no one I know has spent as much time agonizing over this as I have. I mean,
3: yeah, I I didn't totally think it through.
2: This is a friend who I'll call Maya. I wanted her and another friend we'll hear from in a sec to be completely honest, hence the pseudonyms. I started off by asking how the reality of motherhood compared with their expectations.
3: I thought it would be rewarding and like, it would be hard, but that you would get it. It would just make sense. And like, babies can't be that hard. But it was not that at all. (laughs) It is not that. My other friend, who I'll
6: call Erin, chimed in. It is relentless, like nonstop. And your mind gets pulled into so many different directions. So does your body. I've heard that it
2: gets a lot better after the first year. But for Maya, who's now a couple years in, it's still really hard, especially balancing her kid with her job.
3: I think right now it's like juggling both. I I always feel like I'm not doing anything 100% well, Mm -hmm. like being a good worker and also being a parent.
2: Erin told me her job used to be a huge part of her identity. But since having a kid, she's pulled away from work. In some ways, it's felt kind of bad, like she's losing herself. But in others, she says it's put her life
6: into perspective. That was my value. And now I'm away from it, not doing anything remotely close to that, but doing like the most important work I've ever done. And it just makes you rethink like, what was I doing this whole time? Like, that, none of that shit
7: matters.
6: No, no. Finally, I asked Maya
2: and Erin the big question. Are you happier? Erin said it's been hard not being able to do the things she used to love, like going to concerts, trying
6: new restaurants, traveling. Do. But I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. Like, I think, like, there's meaning now. And there's a purpose. Whereas, like, before, we would go to bed and be like, man, we really wasted our day. (laughs) And, uh, like, these days, I never feel that way. Like, I feel like I really did everything I could Mm -hmm. in this day. Do I dread the next day? Yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) At least I don't go to bed feeling, like, wasteful. Mm. And I guess that makes it worth it. (laughs) I don't know. I asked Maya what she thought
2: if in the final balance having kids has brought her more meaning and happiness
3: it's definitely all consuming and i don't like that like <laughs> i regret every day having a kid like there's there are happy moments some days but like i mostly regret it
2: <laughs> what, what makes you is it like how it changed your ability to like live independently and to like have time for yourself it's like all yeah. the things that we we're just talking about
3: yeah being able to be independent but also just the like damage it did to our relationship and like that was like my top pride and joy it was like we have this beautiful relationship and it, this is gonna make me emotional but like that was everything and now we put ourse- our, our relationship and ourselves on the back burner to our, our detriment. Mm. And so n- now we're trying to work really hard to get back to a good place. And it feels like an uphill battle. And that's scary and makes me sad, you know, that I feel like we've lost something. Mm.
2: After talking with Maya and Aaron, I felt like I was being pulled in two different directions. Both said having kids is the hardest thing they've ever done, but for Aaron, it was worth it. For Maya, at least right now, it isn't. So I reached out to other parents, friends, acquaintances, my own parents, about why they decided to have kids and how it's affected their happiness. There were a few common threads. Everyone agreed the first year is rough, Some talked about the toll on their bodies from pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding. Most said having kids changed them as people, giving them more patience, empathy, and gratitude. But there was still no clear answer about happiness. So I decided to find out what science has to say. I started with Jennifer Glass. She's a sociology researcher and professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and a mother to grown children herself. Jennifer has published several influential studies on the happiness of parents, so I decided to get right to the point.
8: Based on your research, if I want to be happy, should I have children? It depends, but probably not. If you're expecting it to increase your happiness.
2: When Jennifer says happiness, she isn't talking about long-term fulfillment, more like your day-to-day well-being, how good you feel in a given moment.
8: I wouldn't say it would necessarily decrease your happiness. I think what the data show pretty conclusively is that there's no increase in happiness from having children, and there can be decreases in parental happiness.
2: I have to say, this kind of blew me away. And at the time it was first discovered by researchers in the 90s, it blew the academic community away, too, because it goes against so much conventional wisdom about the joys of children.
8: A lot of people have these beliefs that, you know, Having children will make you happier or make you feel feel more fulfilled, that if you don't have children, you might be lonely in old age or you might lack people that will care for you. But if you look at all of the studies, you can't find any that show that parenthood, in fact, increases your adult happiness, even in old age.
2: What Jennifer's research added to the mix is that this finding isn't universally true. In a 2016 study, she looked at the happiness of parents versus non-parents in the US and in 21 other developed countries. The results ran the gamut. In some countries, parents were less happy. In some, they were equally happy. And in a few, they were actually more happy than non-parents. In the US though, parents were way less happy than non-parents. And that happiness gap was the biggest in the study. The question, of course, was why? The answer, Jennifer says, can be explained almost entirely by our lack of social and financial support for parents.
8: The costs of raising children are are notoriously high in the United States compared to other countries. Childcare is ferociously expensive. We're the only industrialized country that doesn't have a federal mandate for paid leave. In other words, it comes down to
2: time and money. Of course, Jennifer says this doesn't mean American parents are never happy.
8: It can be very meaningful. It can enhance your sense of why you're here on Earth and what your purpose is in life. So we're not really talking about those psychological states. We're really talking about the kind of hedonic states of do you feel good today? And if you look at the daily experiences of parents, you can see that there's a lot of time where they don't feel good.
2: Case in point, a recent study Jennifer read, asking parents how they were feeling at different times of the day. There was one specific finding that stuck with Jennifer.
8: Mothers were happiest when they were alone in the car. (laughs) This all sounded
2: pretty bleak. But the flip side is the first part of what Jennifer said, that having kids can bring meaning to your life, which raised what was becoming a central question for me. How do you compare happiness and meaning? Because,
8: I said to Jennifer, on some level, doesn't meaning lead to happiness? I think mental health experts will tell you it's a totally different category. That things that can be deeply meaningful can also be very hazardous to your health and well-being. For instance, working with refugees
2: in a war-torn country. Probably not the happiest work, but intensely
8: meaningful. So I think that people derive meaning oftentimes from deciding to engage in forms of self-sacrifice. And I think those are the things that kind of keep people going in times of despair or times of hopelessness, uh, to have that sense of purpose. And so I think you have to really dissociate those two, because one of the things that makes parenthood meaningful is that you feel like you're putting a little bit of your stamp on immortality. To wrap things up, I asked Jennifer what I thought would be a throwaway
2: question about how having kids has changed her life. And she gave me an answer
8: that pretty much blew all the science away. I know all the statistics, I know all the hardships, but I'm going to be like every other parent and I'm going to tell you, it was the best decision of my life. I cannot imagine my life without my children. Uh, it would have been a giant hole because I know the, the sheer joy, those highs those highs are very very high i love my partner a lot but when i walk in the door he doesn't come rushing towards me with his arms open going mommy mommy you're the most important thing in the universe to me you know um it's the only relationship where you will get that where you get that deep sense of abiding unconditional love that you both get and you receive
2: Jennifer's last answer really threw me for a loop. The whole time we were talking, I was feeling more and more like, yes, we are making the right decision. Not only can our lives be happy without kids, they can actually be happier. But the way Jennifer's face lit up talking about her kids, the way she described motherhood as being almost like this transcendent experience, it all thrust me back into doubt. It's not that I think that our lives would be a big black hole without kids. But if not kids, then what? More of the same for the next 40 years? Comfortable but boring? I realized I needed to talk with someone who could show me what a future without kids might look like. So I got in touch with Amy Blackstone. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Maine. And for the past 20 years, she's been studying child-free adults. People who decide not to have kids, as opposed to childless adults, who wanted them but were unable to have them. So tell me about how you got interested in the topic of child-free adults.
9: It was actually both a personal and a professional
2: journey. Amy's 51 now and decidedly child-free. But in her mid-30s, she was still unsure which way to go especially after three of her previously staunchly child-free friends announced they were pregnant, all in the same month. They said it was like a switch had flipped, and they suddenly started to feel this pull towards motherhood.
9: And I was happy for all of my friends, but at the time I thought, wow, you know, why am I not experiencing the same thing that they described? Am I broken in some way?
2: So Amy decided to dive headfirst into research on this understudied group of people. One of the first things she found is that no, there isn't something wrong with her. turns out there is no biological maternal instinct. That pull her friends were feeling towards motherhood, it had more to do with culture
9: than biology. We are given very strong messages from long before we can remember that the most fulfilling role we can have as girls and later as women is to become mothers and that that is our destiny. So of course we believe that that will give our lives meaning and that that is the end all be all.
2: It wasn't until this moment that I realized how much that messaging has affected me, giving me the feeling that I was turning my back on something that I really ought to be doing like choosing to have Doritos for dinner instead of vegetable stir-fry, or lying on the couch all weekend instead of seeing family. As if not wanting kids was some kind of moral failing that would one day be punished with misery. But according to Amy's research, not only is there not something wrong with being child-free, it turns out parents and non-parents list really similar reasons for their decisions to have or not have kids. For instance, concern for their relationships, for their community, and for the future of the world.
9: So we actually have more in common with parents (laughs) than we might think.
2: As for how those decisions play out, Amy told me that people who don't have kids, on the whole, tend not to regret their decision. Which brought me to the biggest question I had for Amy. So this piece is going to be for an episode we're doing about happiness, which is kind of like how I started on my journey of researching this. um, Because I told Amy about all the research on happiness and having kids and how I talked to all these parents who were telling me how having kids is so hard but rewarding, how they might be less happy on a day-to-day level but have a greater sense of meaning, and how this question of meaning had started to become my biggest worry meaning and happiness because I, I would say that's probably other than the peer pressure that's been the biggest thing my mind has been swirling around so I'm wondering is that something that you thought about and is that something that you hear other child-free people talking about is like struggling to find a sense of meaning um, without having kids
9: yes I'm so glad you asked this because this is something I thought a lot about and I'll, let me just cut to the very end and say I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. The world is our oyster, and there are many ways to find meaning. For instance, some people
2: find meaning in their work, or in being creative, or in nurturing their friendships. Amy finds it in her teaching, her husband, the volunteer work she does mentoring high school kids. She meditates, she writes... She does interviews
9: with people like me. Like, there are so many other ways to challenge yourself to become more selfless or to experience new things or to gain greater happiness.
2: Hmm. I love that. I have to say, when you said that, like... I shouldn't worry about that and the world is your oyster. It got me like a little choked up because I guess I didn't realize like how much that has been weighing on my mind is that like sort of the picture that I formed talking to people and researchers is like, well, if I don't have kids, I'll have a pleasant life. I'll have a perfectly pleasant, happy life, but not necessarily like a meaningful life if I don't have kids. I'd hoped that by the end of this story, I would have gathered enough evidence to reach a crystal clear answer. But, of course, making big life decisions isn't like that. So instead, I reported back to my husband, Wooly about what I'd found. Basically, the conclusion I've come to is, like, it's a wash. So, like, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, it doesn't really affect your overall happiness so for me it's it comes back to this question of what would we be missing out on
5: well
4: every choice you make means that you're choosing not to have something else so like you know at the minute like our lives uh, are great and it would be very very difficult to fit a kid in but also, like, we don't know the future. Like, it could be that because we didn't have a kid in a couple of decades, like, our life is just hell and we really missed out and everything. But I, I kind of doubt that at the same time. Like, I don't, I don't have that feeling.
2: To be honest, I don't have that feeling either. Because Willie's right. Our lives are happy now. When I think about the happiest part of my day, it's after dinner. Sitting on the couch with Willie and our two cats just doing the crossword. It's not productive or transcendent or lasting, but maybe happiness doesn't have to be any of those things. If I learned anything from all my conversations, it's that there's no one way to be happy and that happiness isn't guaranteed no matter what you do. So maybe the key is to stop thinking of happiness as a destination we can reach and something more like a compass, a tool among other tools to help us plot our course which I think for now is holding steady, at least until the needle moves one way or the other.
1: That was Liz Tong reporting. Coming up, two men from very similar backgrounds. One became a high-powered lawyer, the other a teacher.
7: Who led a happier life and why? The difference had a lot to do with how much they engaged in relationships with other people. That's next on The Pulse.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over fifty varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com dot com slash npr.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about happiness. We often think of happiness as a destination, something we can pursue, like a better job, a new house, a dream vacation, bringing us more joy. Psychiatrist Robert Waldinger says, in reality, the path looks very different. I asked him to read a passage from his book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of
7: Happiness. The good life is joyful and challenging, full of love but also pain. And it never strictly happens. Instead, the good life unfolds through time. It's a process. It includes turmoil, calm, lightness, burdens, struggles, achievements, setbacks, leaps forward, and terrible falls. And of course, the good life always ends in death. A cheery sales pitch, we know, but let's not mince words. Life, even when it's good, is not easy. There is simply no way to make life perfect, and if there were, then it wouldn't be good. Why? Because a rich life, a good life, is forged from precisely the things that make it hard.
1: Robert wrote this book together with Mark Schultz. It's based on their work in directing the Harvard Study of Adult Development, a study of human thriving and happiness that's been going on for 80 plus years. Robert is its fourth director. It started in 1938 with 724 participants. Some of them were Harvard undergrads, others came from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Many details of their lives were recorded, from Childhood troubles to their first love, their living situations, jobs, all the way to their final days. And as technology advanced, researchers started using new measurements like MRI scans or DNA tests. In the beginning, it was only men in the study, then researchers expanded it to include wives and children. Today, the study continues with the descendants of the original group. Let's talk a little bit about definitions. There are issues around how satisfied we are with our lives, how we feel about our lives, how, quote, happy we are. Those are all things we have our own definitions for. And when you try to standardize them, it gets really difficult. So
7: what are the definitions you use for this study? It does get difficult. But the research is showing that there are a couple of big flavors of Happiness, if you will. And that when you study thousands of people, they mostly fall into one of these buckets. So there's hedonic well being, and it comes from hedonism. And it really refers to that sense of, Am I having a good time right now? You know, are we having a good time talking together? And that's a moment to moment experience. But an hour from now, something upsetting may happen to me, and I won't be happy. At that moment, right? Then there's another kind of happiness that we refer to as eudaimonic well being, comes from Aristotle. And it really is that sense of life being basically worthwhile, my life being basically good. And that's a longer term sense of contentment. There's a third flavor that people have begun to study called psychological richness. And the argument is that some people prioritize having new experiences, stimulating experiences. Maybe not even ones that make you happy, but like traveling to new places or meeting new people.
1: But it sounds like people could lead very, very different lives and still report at the end of it having been pretty happy.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we know when you study thousands of people across many decades, one size never fits all. Like happiness is not the same, probably for any one person as another, but certainly there are many, many different ways to lead a happy life.
1: Is one element of feeling happy and satisfied that you find a life that matches your expectations, your personality? You know, if I'm craving a lot of excitement and I have an office job, you know, somebody else might be super happy in that office job, but I might not be. So how important is it to kind of like match your personality to your life?
7: It's very important. And there really are ways of tuning into that. So one of the things that we know is that each of us gets energized by some things that we do, and each of us gets our energy depleted by other things. And so to the extent that we can tune into the things that energize us and turn toward those things when it's possible, that really is much more likely to make us happy. Now, choice isn't always possible, as you were implying, I think, in your question, You know, that I may be stuck in a job where it's hard to do that. But even in a job that isn't so exciting for me, there may be ways to find those elements that are more exciting or those people who are more enlivening, even in the midst of a kind of dull daily routine. The people
1: in your study come... And came from very different backgrounds. Some were really affluent. Some came from, from families that were well-to-do. Others came from really poor families. How important are the life circumstances to the outcomes that you measured and continue to
7: measure? They are important for some things and not so much for others. So one of the things we know is that privilege really matters our Harvard undergraduate students who we started with in 1938, they lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city men. And we're pretty sure that has to do with access to education, access to information about good health behaviors, access to good health care, that all of that really matters. On the other hand, the two groups, the really poor, underprivileged inner city group and the Harvard group didn't differ in their average levels of happiness as they went through their lives. So in some ways privilege matters, in some ways less so.
1: You write about, in your book, two men who came from very similar backgrounds. One went to war. The other one served in the military but did not fight in World War II. One became a lawyer, made really good money. The other became a teacher, did not make such great money. How did they stack
7: up? Well, we deliberately chose those two to compare with each other. Because they started out privileged. They started out as Harvard undergraduates. And so you would think each of those men had it made. They were all set up to have great lives. They had such different lives that the man who didn't make much money and was a high school teacher his whole life, he was almost certainly our happiest person in the study, bar none. And the lawyer who made lots of money and won awards, he was one of our least... Happy people. And the difference had a lot to do with how much they engaged in relationships with other people. The high school teacher turned out he loved his students and his colleagues. He had a warm relationship with his partner, warm relationships with his kids and his grandkids. The lawyer had two unhappy marriages pretty distant relationships with his children and never felt like he quite fit in in life. How much does personality
1: or disposition play a role here? I'm thinking about how much regret we feel when things didn't go our way or when we feel like we made the wrong decision or how we view other people, whether we tend to want to see the best in others or whether we are regarding others with suspicion. I think all of that contributes to our overall experience of life. So how important is it in these
7: happiness levels that people report? Well, personality does matter. There's inborn temperament, if you will, which is a hard thing to define. But We all know some people who are really gloomy no matter what's going on and some people who are really cheerful all the time. And one of the things that research has shown is that we all have a kind of happiness set point and that we tend to return to that set point. They did a study of people who'd won the lottery and also of people who'd had a terrible accident and become paralyzed and wheelchair-bound And they studied their levels of happiness before and after these big events. And a year after the big event, everybody had returned more or less to their baseline levels of happiness. So the lottery winners didn't stay euphoric a year later. And the people who'd had the accidents um, were back to their usual levels of happiness. And that suggests that we all have a kind of inborn set point that can be changed, that we can work on, but that's there for each of us.
1: But we tend to
7: associate happiness more with external factors, don't we? We do. Um, I'm a Zen practitioner, so I spend a lot of time on a meditation cushion. And one of the things that I learned is that external factors come and go, but that there is a kind of basic okayness about life that we can tap into it doesn't have to be in meditation. It can be, you know, taking a walk in nature. It can be getting lost in a wonderful piece of music. Um, But that there is a way to sort of see beyond the momentary external factors of life.
1: And that seems like a really important message that tends to get lost in our day-to-day lives. where We're So frustrated with dumb stuff and whatever, like something that happened at the office yesterday or some traffic that derailed me. Like we all do this where we look to the outside world and we do not tap into what's inside.
7: Absolutely. Actually, one of my friends has this saying. He says, I often ask myself, what was my problem three problems ago? And he (laughs) said, I can never remember, right? Because everything changes. And so what we know is that even if I'm really annoyed today about something that happened at work, I'm not going to feel that way tomorrow, by and large, right? Everything moves ahead and changes,
1: Let's talk a bit about relationships since they seem to play such a big role in people's overall level of happiness. What kind of relationships are we talking about? Family, spouse?
7: We're talking about all of them. So, you don't have to have a romantic partner. You don't have to live with someone to get these benefits that we find in our research. It can be other family members, can be friends. The other thing that research has begun to show is that the relationships we think of as superficial, like talking to the person who makes your coffee for you in the coffee shop or talking to the person who checks out your groceries at the grocery store, that those give us little hits of well-being. And so even those kind of casual ties, as we call them, uh, help us feel connected, help us feel that we belong. so all of it matters and how do people maintain these
1: relationships? If you think about some of the happiest people in the study, what do they talk about keeping close friends, you know, doing doing the work to have those relationships in their lives? Well,
7: the work isn't that hard, actually it's just persistence that counts. So like in our book we coined the term social fitness and we meant it to be an analogy to physical fitness. The idea being that you know if I go work out today, I don't come home and say gee, I never have to do that ever again. I'm done, right? Like we know that taking care of our bodies, getting exercise is an ongoing thing. And in in our research we found that the people who were best at this social fitness were the, bad, were the people who took small actions day after day, week after week. So they kept in touch with the people who they wanted to keep in their lives, whether it was phone, you know, or making sure they got together, inviting people over to their house. Um, all of these activities matter and You know, people can do that right now. Sometimes I challenge people. I say, just think of someone you miss and want to connect with and just take out your phone right now and text them or email them. And just to say hi. These kind of small actions day after day are enough to keep our important relationships alive and vibrant.
1: Were there any broader takeaway points from study participants in terms of happy, quote, happy marriages,
7: families where people felt loved and supported. One of the takeaways was that the people who were happiest in their relationships were the people who kept allowing each other to change and supported each other in those changes, which is a really important concept that I never thought of. So when I've been married for 37 years, and when we got married, I thought, well, I'm I'm marrying this person and this is who she is and this is who she's going to be. Well, of course, she's changed so much and I've changed so much. And I think what we learn is that in all of our relationships, friendships, certainly family relationships, that when we keep noticing who is this person now, who is this person becoming, and when we respect those changes and even support them, that that goes a long way to keeping relationships stable and closely connected. And I think a lot of what our work has shown is that bringing relationships front and center into our awareness is something that helps us realize, oh my gosh, this is such an important factor in what makes me happy and what makes a good life.
1: The more we talk, the more I'm thinking about something I think my kindergarten teacher used to say to us, where she would say, it's the little things. It's the little things, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that sounds like whatever, you're going to cross-stitch it on some <laughs> some frame, but, but it's also true. Yes.
7: You know, and that's what, sometimes I'll say this, you know, because look, I've done this Fancy research for 85, I mean, I haven't done it for 85 years, but it's an 85-year rigorous scientific study. But often I say about this topic, it's not rocket science. It's not hard. It just involves paying attention and doing the little things, as you say, over and over again to nurture our relationships.
1: Do you think we have outsized expectations in terms of our happiness where... It just seems like, oh, I should be on this massive nor'easter roller coaster, and instead I'm on a little teacup ride or something you know yeah, <laughs> like yeah. where yeah, where I yeah. just it it feels like, oh, everything should be so much bigger and grander and and
7: flashier. yeah, I do think we have that expectation, and to some extent, the culture gives us the impression that life should be like that. So think about scrolling through someone else's social media feed Mm -hmm. and you see their photos of beautiful beaches that they're on, right? Or great parties or about to dig into a wonderful plate of food, right? And you would imagine that everybody else is doing that all the time, that they're all (laughs) out there living their best happy lives 24 seven. And one of my teachers put it this way, he said, we're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides, um and you know the the curated lives that we show each other can can give the impression that life is supposed to be a wonderful ride all the time. Nobody on earth is happy all the time,
1: right, nor would we know what happy is if we had it all the time, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's another good lesson that emerges from the book is that the moments of joy and, and sheer happiness, they come in contrast
7: to the other moments. Exactly. You know, one of the things, if I analogize it to going on a vacation, that actually a lot of what's helpful for me about going on a vacation is just the change, right? The contrast between my usual day-to-day life and being in a new place. But then, by the end of the vacation, I'm often ready to come back to my usual day-to-day life. It's the contrast. And I think that the contrast between good times and harder times is what helps us appreciate the good times.
1: You say in the book that it's, it's never too late to be happier. So how do we get there?
7: Yeah, well, one of the things that's true is that you can't plan it, right? You can make yourself more likely to be happy. Um, One quote is happiness is like an accident, but we can make ourselves more accident prone, right? So that you can set up the conditions which make you more likely to be happy. And that means taking care of your health, taking care of your body, and as we say, taking care of your relationships. And that if you can do those things and also try to keep engaging in the activities you care about, that those are the kind of active ingredients which make it more likely that we'll be happy more of the time.
1: Robert Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. Together with Mark Schultz, he has written The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. The work Robert and other researchers have done seems to be pretty clear that money can't buy you happiness. But it does play a role, especially when financial worries are a constant source of stress or when people can't afford good nutrition or health care. Several cities in the US are now experimenting with guaranteed income programs, more as a way to help families thrive and stay healthy.
5: But could this also impact happiness levels? Alan Yu reports Back in 2019, Tomas Vargas Jr. struggled to pay the bills for his family. He lives in Stockton, California, with his wife and two young children. He worked a warehouse job in the evenings. During the day, he looked for side hustles like fixing cars or mowing lawns.
10: I was always coming home extra tired, and then I would go to work. I mean, and then after I'd come back from work, I'd be even even more tired. So it was a constant just day, every day, every day.
5: His wife cannot work because of a rare genetic condition. Their household income was around $31,000 a year. Tomas and his wife were in debt and worried about money all the time.
10: My kids got sick. They need allergy medicine. Uh, Where's that money going to come from? Gas money, everything like that was really like on top of me.
5: It was exhausting. And then things took a turn for the better. In 2019, Tomas was selected to be part of a pilot project in his city that gave people a guaranteed income. The mayor of Stockton worked with donors to give $500 a month to 125 people living in neighborhoods that were at or below the city's median household income. Tomás used the first nine months' worth of money to settle all his debt. Then he was able to quit his warehouse job to find a position with better pay and benefits. My wife
10: was most excited when we started having zero balances on our bills.
5: But he says the best part was being able to spend more time with his children. Two years ago, they went camping with family for the first time. They went to a lake at the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountain range.
10: And that was one of the biggest changes It got me to accept accept things that I was, you know, scared to do before, like long drives with my kids and things like that. It really changed my life to sit there and have the ability to take that breath to sit there and actually believe in myself and love myself.
5: Cities across the country are experimenting with the idea of guaranteed income. Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, St. Paul have announced similar programs. Now, they are not doing this in the name of happiness research. The programs are there to help people make ends meet. But guaranteed income programs do put into practice something that psychologists have argued for years. That someone who has less income will get a much bigger boost in happiness by getting money, compared to someone who is already well off. Psychologist and happiness researcher Liz Dunn says years of research back this up.
11: A very clear pathway to increasing the overall happiness of the society is to make sure that those at the bottom get pulled up.
5: At first, a lot of this work just came from looking at correlations.
11: Who are these happy people? You know, what are their characteristics? And so that's where a lot of the research on money and happiness began was just by looking at how much happier are rich people than poor people.
5: But over the years, that has changed with more experimental data coming in from projects like the Guaranteed Income Pilot Program in Stockton. Researchers studied that program, and earlier this year, they published their findings. They found that the people who got the monthly checks were not just more financially secure, they were physically and mentally healthier, compared to a control group of people who did not get the money. One of the researchers is Stacia West, associate professor of social work at the University of Tennessee. She says the research shows guaranteed income makes people better off. The question now is just how to do it.
3: The real questions, I believe, are around dosage. So is it $500 a month? Is it $1,000 a month? Is it $2,000 a month?
5: Pilot programs are experimenting with different amounts over different periods of time. But she says there is one big concern. Who should pay for it? She cites a study from 2015 that looked at how much it would take to bring every person in the US living below the federal poverty line up to that level. In 2015, that was an annual income of a little more than $11,000 per person. The study found that it would take $219 billion a year. Stacia says that is a lot of money, but this is what she would say in response to that issue.
3: How expensive is it, right, to have people suffering in poverty, having increased medical costs, to not be able to go to work, to not be able to spend time with their families,
5: Liz Dunn has some ideas on who should pay for guaranteed income programs. She recently did an experiment that gave $10,000 to 200 people in countries around the world to study how that would change their levels of happiness. She got the money from two donors who contributed $2 million of their own money. Liz evaluated how much the money boosted happiness for the people who received it and also estimated how the two donors would have been affected.
11: By giving this money away, these two high net worth individuals essentially created 225 times more life satisfaction with this amount of money than they would have if they had just kept it in their own bank accounts. So you can really magnify the impact of money if you have a little, some extra, (laughs) by giving it away to others who have less than you do than by keeping it for yourself.
5: And she says it's a win-win. One of her consistent findings is that people get more happiness by spending money on other people.
11: Past research has demonstrated that people actually feel Good, this warm glow from giving to others.
1: That story was reported by Alan Yu. You're listening to the polls. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, when does the desire to be happy and to radiate positivity become a bad thing?
12: The first thing they say when they come to therapy is, I just want to be happy. I don't understand why I'm not happy.
1: That's still to come on the polls.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares one reason this work is so important.
6: We need to know what's the optimal way that you would dose physical activity just like you might a medicine. And without research to be able to understand that, we can't maximize the benefits of physical activity for cancer prevention.
4: To learn more, go to cancer.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Medical emergencies. Travel delays. Cancelled flights. Anything can happen when you travel. That's why more than 70 million American travelers choose Allianz Travel Insurance to help them with headaches along the way. Get a quote and learn more at allianztravelinsurance.com.
0: This message comes from the Soul Boom podcast hosted by Rain Wilson. Every Tuesday, Rain speaks with guests about topics that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom wherever you get your podcasts. More at voicingchange.media.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about happiness. When psychotherapist Whitney Goodman scrolled around on Instagram or Pinterest, she kept seeing these inspirational quotes, you know, the hashtag blessed kind of posts that were telling people to just be happy. Happy people are the best type of people.
4: Just be positive. Just be grateful. Be happy. Be bright. Be you. Happiness is a choice.
11: Just be positive. (laughs)
1: But Whitney didn't feel happy when she read those quotes, despite the bright colors, the whimsical fonts, and the pictures of sunsets. Instead, she was irritated. And what was it about these sayings that Annoyed you? As a
12: therapist, I felt like they lacked so much nuance. And it really makes it seem like it should be so easy to do these things, especially when we pair them with the word just.
1: Whitney felt like this pressure to put a positive spin on everything, to constantly radiate happiness, was doing more harm than good. She writes about this in her book, Toxic Positivity, keeping it real in a world obsessed with being happy.
12: It has been a part of pretty much every client's journey that I've ever worked with. You know, a lot of people that don't really understand what's going on in their lives the first thing they say when they come to therapy is i just want to be happy i don't understand why i'm not happy and it's it's this really big question and quest for people that i think we end up breaking down like what does that look like for you and is happiness really the goal that we should all be pursuing is it a goal that we can even achieve
1: Whitney says a lot of people think that always looking on the bright side will make them happier. So is there a relationship between happiness and positivity in your mind? The relationship between the two is actually quite weak. I
12: think we've been taught that if we have more positive thoughts, we will be happier. But unfortunately, happiness is this amorphous concept that is really different for every person. And it's also just one emotion that we feel and we can't expect to feel a feeling all the time.
1: When does positivity become toxic? You give a lot of examples in the book and you put readers through different scenarios. Like one of the scenarios is, you know, let's say you've just lost your job. This is A big life-changing moment, and you want to tell a friend what happened, and then what does the friend say? The friend in that moment would say,
12: oh, you know, you're going to find a job, everything's going to be fine. And this is an example of how positivity can become toxic when it's used at the wrong time, in the wrong situation, with the wrong Topic Some of those might be like infertility and pregnancy loss, grief,
1: illness, disability. And I'm sure we've all done this, right? I mean, I've found myself trying to put a positive spin on a situation with a friend. What's the instinct on the part of the person who says, But you still, or But look at it this way? We all definitely do this,
12: myself included. And I think. A lot of it has to do with our desire to fix things for people to make it better for them. There's a really like selfless or good intention behind it. As a culture, you know, especially in American culture, we're also really trained to believe that getting to positivity or happiness is always the goal. And that's what we should be helping people do. I also think a lot of people just don't know any other way, they don't have any other options or skills, and they feel very uncomfortable sitting in difficult emotions themselves. And so they have a lot of trouble doing that when other people are having those types of feelings around them.
1: What do we want when we put a positive spin on a situation? Let's say we've just gotten a really scary diagnosis. When we're trying our best to put a smile on our face and to say, here's the good part about this, what do we really want?
11: Mm -hmm.
12: We're looking for relief and control in that moment. If I can understand why this is happening to me and put a positive spin on it, it gives me some security in that I know why this is happening and I know what's going to happen next. And one of the biggest things humans deal with, the biggest problems, is lack of control or insecurity about what's going to happen in the future. And I really think positive thinking has attempted to give us that level of control over our future, over our present, but it's a a bit of a false promise.
1: Whitney says, of course, positivity is not all bad. It can help us get through things and it can make us feel better. I think a lot of us are also naturally attracted to positive people. We like their energy. We like the person who is in the office who is like, hey, how are you, who always has a smile on their face, right? I mean, there is something attractive about it.
12: There's absolutely something attractive about that. And I think that's something that I found can become part of toxic positivity when there is a person who is that way And people continue to reinforce that about them. Like, I love that you're always positive. You never complain about anything. That when I've sat with those people in my office, they sometimes feel like they cannot let people see when they're struggling. They cannot let anyone in on that because it would really break down this core part of them that people have celebrated and enjoyed about them. And so while it can be a very good thing, I think we have to remember that sometimes those people are also the ones that are not letting us in on their struggle.
1: What does the work look like with your clients who are looking for happiness, who are trying their best to be positive? And sometimes life just isn't all that positive, at least in this moment. So what is the work that you do with people to find that more authentic feeling of happiness?
12: The first step is just getting them to allow themselves to talk about the things that are hard in life. And then from there, we try to work on radical acceptance of this is how life is and I have control over how I handle it. I have control over X, Y, and Z in this situation and helping the person develop an internal locus of control over their struggles so that they feel empowered while also accepting that sometimes life is hard and unfair and sometimes we don't know what to do in those situations.
1: Whitney Goodman is a psychotherapist and the author of Toxic Positivity, keeping it real in a world obsessed with being happy. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tang, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarsky. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
4: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. care. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at Schwab.com. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone.